1: Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Tanko's message today is entitled, The Rich Man and Lazarus. That's The Rich Man and Lazarus, and you can find it online at reachingyourheart.com. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, you can call us at any time, 24-7. Here's the phone number, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888 Here's Pastor Michael Tanko with the first portion of The Rich Man and Lazarus. Today's Reaching Your Heart.
2: We need a righteous generation that will not do things the way it's always been done. Father, there will come a day when I must surrender this pulpit to a man of God or a woman of God or groups here, Father, who are younger, who have talents, who have spiritual gifts, that are meant to lead the church forward. Now father, what we need is humility to realize that we are here in part because of us. Help us not to repeat the mistakes of ancient Israel but to obey the word, to feast on it, and to share Christ with a world that doesn't know. And father, one thing's highly obvious. If you look in the church, it's obvious that people are in different places of their Christian experience. And there are some father who have been in the church for many years and some who haven't. And Father, there are some who make mistakes like me, and I'm grateful for those who look beyond those mistakes. So Father, help us to grow in Christ and to know Him more fully this day and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. I must be very frank with you. I have avoided preaching this sermon all my life. All my life I've avoided it because I didn't feel comfortable preaching on the subject of the rich man and Lazarus. I do not want to preach a sermon where I contrive something or where something is strained or where I make a point with other Bible verses rather than allowing the text to explain itself. And this is, I believe, one of the most difficult parables of Jesus and one of the most difficult sections of Scripture to understand. So with that in mind, I'm going to be very... Up front with you this morning, I don't have a lot of illustrations today. If you came for a story, you should probably go home. With The story is the parable itself. And with that said, let's just open our Bibles. If you have your Bibles, don't leave them closed. Open them to Luke 16. We're going to be moving back and forth across this passage so we can have a Bible study to unearth the real significance of this parable You know, many people today believe that Jesus used parables to make things clearer so the simple could understand them. How many of you felt that way? Parables make things clearer. This simply is not true. In Matthew 13, 12 and 13, Christ made it very clear that he taught in parables to conceal the truth from unbelievers, to conceal the truth from shallow listeners, and to reveal it to his followers who would obey the word of God and follow it. We are to study the parables because they are not simple, they are profound, and they require a surrendered heart and settled mind and spiritual focus to understand the words of Jesus. Look at Matthew thirteen twelve. Christ said, for to him who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is no exception to the rule that Jesus laid down in Matthew thirteen twelve and 13. Those who feast at God's table can lose an understanding of God's Word if they fail to be obedient and share the truth with others. Historically, many Christians have treated the story of the rich man and Lazarus as an historical account of a rich man who really died and went to hell. In fact, the New International Version just translates the word Hades, which is the Greek word. They just translate it hell, assuming everyone will kind of think that way. And of course, Lazarus in the story is believed by many Christians is one who really died and went to heaven. Now, I believe that this view is incompatible with the teachings of Jesus and the principles of understanding parables. It is incompatible with Scripture. And so, head on, I face the fact that we must look at this parable and not put our own meanings into it. The parable of the rich man Lazarus is all the elements of an allegorical parable. Now, an allegorical parable is a literary form that was used by Jesus in his teaching ministry. So it shouldn't shock us that he's using it here. And the allegorical elements of the parable describe clearly defined truths. So the different elements describe truths. But the story itself contains a central point that is both an admonition and a warning for those who hear it. Now, before we start, I would like to give a few verses that reveal... The Bible's clear teaching on Hades and the afterlife. The reason for that is is that in the parable, the word Hades is often translated in our English Bible, hell. So I would like to go through the Old Testament passages in the Greek Old Testament that use the word Hades and see if we can't figure out the significance of it in the Greek and then look at a few in the New Testament as well. The word Hades is the Greek word used for the grave in the Old Testament. It comes from a root that means to not see. That's what Hades means, to not see. It represents the kind of darkness in which there is no sight at all. Death is such a place because there is no light in the grave, according to the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word Hades is a consistent word, and this is the Greek Old Testament. The word Hades is a consistent word used for the Hebrew word Sheol, which means the grave. Sheol is Hades in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was translated in the 2nd century B.C. And it's very clear in the Bible that this place is a place that receives both the righteous and the unrighteous. Everyone goes to Hades. The Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament translation of number 1633, let's look at the verse. Here we have the Greek word Hades. It's used for Sheol. And here it's used to describe the place where the rebels went who revolted against Moses. The earth swallowed them up alive. It says, "...so they all that belonged to them, Korah and his rebellion, went down alive into Sheol." That's the English translation of the Hebrew. But the Greek Old Testament says Hades. "...and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly." Now, the Greek Old Testament translation of Genesis 37-35 uses the Greek word Hades this time not to describe the place where rebels go, but it uses it to describe the grave of Jacob, the father of Israel. It says, All Jacob's sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to, the Hebrew says Sheol, but the Greek Old Testament says Hades, to my son mourning, here are some more texts where the Greek word Hades is used for sheol in the Greek Old Testament first Samuel two verse six the Lord kills and brings to life he brings down to what does it say in the English translation sheol but in the Greek Old Testament it says hades, and he raises up psalm six five for in death there is no remembrance of thee in sheol in our English translation of the Hebrew, but the Greek Old Testament says, in Hades, who can give thee praise? And it is, of course, stated that no one can give God praise in Hades because Hades is the grave, it is a place of darkness, and there is no light in it. The Bible teaches that death in Hades will give up the dead at the end of time. Revelation 1, verse 18, Christ says, I am he who lives, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now Christ is saying that He can unlock Hades for the believer. That means that Hades is the grave. And it goes with death and Christ has been there. He didn't descend in some fiery inferno called hell. He went to the grave, which is the Hebrew Sheol, which is the place that you cannot see anything in, the place of darkness. And because He rose from the tomb, because the light of the resurrection pierced the darkness of the grave, He says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. And dear heart, if you hold the hand that holds the keys, you don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of the darkness of the grave because there is light at the end of the tunnel and Christ is the light of life. Christ is saying that he can unlock the door because he has the keys. He is saying that the grave is nothing to be afraid of. Just like Jesus died and came to life in a resurrection, you can live and come to life if you hold the hand that holds the keys. Revelation 20:13 describes the resurrection of the wicked. The Bible says, And the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them. And all were judged by what they had done. Now in Revelation 20.15, the wicked are cast into the lake of fire after they come out of Hades, which is the grave. Now sequence is everything to logic here. In Revelation 20, they meet the fire after the resurrection from Hades at the end of the millennium, not one minute before the resurrection. The fire comes down and destroys them after they have been resurrected from Hades. And once they have left Hades, then they find the fire. That's the sequence here. That means Hades does not have fire. The fire comes after the resurrection from Hades, which matching the context of the Greek Old Testament is the grave. In fact, the Bible teaches that God will destroy death and Hades in the lake of fire. That means the fire will destroy Hades. Now, if Hades is the fire, how can the fire destroy Hades? It's illogical. That means the fire will destroy the grave. It's very simply stated and profoundly put. The fire of hell will destroy every graveyard forever. Hell is not Hades, dear heart. Hades is the grave. The King James Version, New International Version, others at times translates this word hell. And we think of Dante's Inferno and other images, but that's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible says the fire will reach down into Hades and destroy it. And we have a very clear picture of this in Deuteronomy 32, 22. For a fire is kindled by my anger, God is speaking. And it burns to the depths of Sheol. In the Greek Old Testament, that word is translated Hades. It devours the earth and in its increase and it sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. That's what Revelation is saying. That God will burn up every graveyard. There will be no death left because death and Hades will be thrown in the lake of fire. Revelation twenty. Verse 14, it's just put plainly, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The grave will die. Hades will die. Hades will be no more. You see, if fire is Hades, why does it have to be thrown into the fire? That makes no logical sense. And so, instead of front-loading these verses with our opinions and our tradition, let the Bible stand. Hades is the unseen world of the grave. And God promises that one day He will destroy Hades with fire. The Bible teaches very clearly that there is a judgment of the dead that comes at the end of time. That means people who do not immediately receive the reward in this life, they don't receive it immediately after death either in a place called heaven or hell. They wait until the judgment and the reward comes at the end of time. They wait without consciousness in the sleep of death for the judgment at the end of time. That's why Hades is the place with no light, in a place which you cannot see because the person is unconscious. Christ called death a sleep again and again and again, and theologians and Bible preachers contradict Christ by saying there's no such thing as soul sleep when Christ says there is such a thing. Lazarus is asleep. Now dear heart, if I have to choose between someone who's an expert on death, the one who holds the keys, of death and of Hades, is the expert on the theology as to what death is. And Christ said death is a sleep. Now in Hebrews 9.27 it says, And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. says that after that Christ will reward those who seek Him. The Bible teaches that the judgment comes after a person dies. When you look at that verse, am I reading it right? Does it not say that? That when a person dies, after they die, then comes the judgment. Yes, Or no? Do you read that right with me? Okay, very good. I want to see if you're online with me. Now, there are two logical options to explain this verse. Only one works with Scripture. Option number one, which is logical, if you only look at that one verse, nothing else. Option number one, the judgment happens immediately after the death of every person individually as they are judged immediately. Many Christians believe this. Now, this view would mean that there is no set time for the righteous dead to be judged as a group and no set time for the righteous wicked to be judged as a group either. In other words, everyone would be judged individually, gradually. As they die, the judgment is instant for every person. It happens for everyone independently after death. There's no biblical teaching of an end-time judgment of the righteous dead or a post-millennial judgment of the wicked dead. It all happens gradually as everybody slips into heaven and figures out who's there. Now, the second option, I believe, is the right option because it agrees with Scripture. It agrees with more than just one text. It agrees with this text and a lot of other texts. Option number two, the Bible teaches that there is a set time for the righteous dead to be judged just before Jesus returns. And there's a set time for the wicked to be judged, too, at the end of the millennium. Now, that view would be just as true to that verse you die, and after you die comes the judgment. You see, that verse doesn't tell you when the judgment comes. It just says it comes after you die. Now, in Revelation 11, 18, we have a clear statement concerning the righteous and the judgment of the righteous that occurs just before the second coming of Christ in heaven and a pre-advent judgment. And the reaction to this judgment is, in fact, an international turmoil as the nations of the earth rebel against the sovereign rule of Jesus. The Bible says the nations raged, but thy wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And now it defines which dead. It says, for rewarding thy servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear thy name, both small and great. Now this is a judgment of the righteous dead in the context of a pre-advent judgment. In Revelation 11, it's very clear this is a heavenly judgment. And then it says, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. It has end-time implications for that generation on earth that would destroy human civilization and make war on God's people. In verse 19 it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There is a movement into the most holy place for this pre-advent judgment of the righteous dead, clearly taught in the Bible. According to Revelation 20, the wicked dead are judged a thousand years after The resurrection of the righteous, which occurs at the beginning of the millennium. So we have two resurrections. The righteous, they come out of the grave after this pre-advent judgment in heaven of the righteous dead. But the wicked stay in the grave, and a thousand years later, they come out to be judged as well. Revelation 20 verse 5 indicates that the wicked are resurrected at the end of the millennium. In Revelation 20 verse 12, it says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Now the context here is not the righteous dead, it's the wicked dead. And also another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. In other words, this group isn't judged out of the book of life because their names aren't in it. They're judged by the books of their life record without the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and they stand no chance of surviving a judgment without a Savior. Christ clearly taught that the dead would experience a bodily resurrection to receive the reward or punishment. Now, if the first option is true, when you are dead, you go immediately to heaven, you meet St. Peter at the gate, you're judged, you receive your reward, you get your crown, your robe, your harp, you move in, right? Christ didn't say it, that's how it happens. Luke 14:14. 14, 14, he said, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. He's talking about being generous in this life. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We don't get our reward before the resurrection, dear heart. We get our reward in the resurrection. And so the judgment precedes the resurrection from the dead. In the Bible, there is no confusion on the teaching of death at all. The Bible's not gummy in its theology. We bring our own ideas to Scripture, and therefore we struggle with its meaning because of that. Hades simply represents the grave, the dark grave. It means to not see. And the grave receives both the righteous and the unrighteous. Hades is not hell, as many Christians believe, because there's no fire there. Fire, in fact, destroys Hades in the book of Revelation. God's people and the wicked sleep in the grave unconscious until the resurrections. The first for the righteous, the second for the unrighteous. And the reward or punishment comes for the righteous after the resurrection and not before And the unrighteous, of course, it comes after the resurrection, not before. And the fire comes after the resurrection of the wicked when they have been resurrected from Hades. There's no fire in Hades, according to the book of Revelation. The fire destroys Hades. With that brief introduction, let's look at Jesus' allegorical parable of the rich man and Lazarus that begins in Luke 16, verse 19. Christ says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus has a way of telling a story, doesn't he? I mean, a graphic illustration of two people living in completely different circumstances. Now, in the parable, the rich man represents Pharisaical Judaism. The Pharisees despised the Gentiles, who they consider to be dogs, and they loved money more than men created in the image of God. And the story of the rich man and Lazarus is set in the context, its immediate context in Luke 16, 1, of a dishonest steward who served a rich man for gain. And the story of the rich man and Lazarus occurs just four verses before Jesus rebuke of the Pharisees in Luke 16:14 when he said they're lovers of money. He says here verse 14, "The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of this and they scoffed at him." So in the parable of the rich man Lazarus, Jesus says in Luke 16:19 that the rich man was clothed in both purple and linen. Now purple was the color of royalty in the Roman world. In fact, when a Roman emperor would come to the throne, the expression was given, he would receive the purple. Purple represented the power of a king. The Bible says in addition to purple, linen was the clothing of this rich man. Linen represents not kingly rule. It is a priestly picture. Leviticus 16.32 in the Old Testament, "...and the priest whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement." And then it says, "...he shall put on the linen clothes..." the holy garments. In the Greek of Luke 16, 19, the rich man habitually wore purple and linen. That's what he had all the time. In this allegorical parable, the rich man represents the Jewish nation of Israel that was meant to be a royal kingdom and a holy priesthood. It has all the core symbols representing the chosen people of God. In Exodus nineteen six, God had said to them, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And so a kingdom of royal priests, kingly and priestly coming together in a single people. And so the rich man represented the people of Israel. The Greek text says in Luke sixteen nineteen that the rich man made Mary each day splendidly. The Greek word for making Mary is used in the Gospel of Luke to describe feasting. God gave Israel the word of God to feast upon it. In Deuteronomy 8, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Luke eleven thirteen, 13, Jesus said, Give us this day our daily bread. It's said in Luke 19, 47, that Christ would teach the people the word of God daily in the temple. You know, Judaism enjoyed a daily feast of God's word while the poor man Lazarus sat at the gate hoping for a crumb that would accidentally fall from Israel's table. That's the picture. Since the rich man represents the royal priesthood of the nation of Israel, what does the poor man represent in the parable? That's the second question. Lazarus, what does he represent? Lazarus is taken from the Hebrew word Eliezer. And Eliezer means, God is my help. In verse 24, the rich man calls Abraham his father. He says in verse 24, My father. And in verse 25, Abraham says, My child, it's evocative of address, My child, technon, my child. It's very clear the rich man is a child of Abraham, and the poor man Lazarus is a Gentile without God's word. He's not a child of Abraham. That is the critical distinction that defines the message of this parable. The name Lazarus in the Greek is taken from the Hebrew name Eliezer. It's the same. Lazarus is Greek for Eliezer. So it's no accident that Abraham's servant in Genesis fifteen two was named Eliezer, which means God is my help. And you know, Abraham had turned to God and he said, Listen, you tell me I'm going to have a son. But my steward, his name is Eliezer, he will inherit all that I have. And God says, Not so. I will give you a son and he will be your heir.
1: Thanks for listening today. If this message is ministered to you, remember there are many more just like it at reachingyourheart.com. If you're a regular listener to this broadcast or if you've just tuned in for the first time and have been inspired by this sermon and you'd like to partner with us to help keep these radio broadcasts on the air, you can simply call us at 1-888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE, day or night, 24-7. One of our team is available to assist you right now. We believe God is moving across the globe, touching lives and reaching hearts, and you are helping make this a reality with your gift of any amount. These are urgent times, and God has an urgent message. God's message in Revelation is one of warning and encouragement, and it's a personal appeal to all of mankind. It is his final message before sweeping changes occur across the globe. Events that will take place just prior to Christ's second coming. You see, God doesn't want his church to be surprised by the events that will take place. He wants his church ready for his return. We have a book titled God's Last Altar Call that will encourage you and help you understand what events must take place as found in the book of Revelation. We'll send you this book for a donation of any amount and pray that you will be encouraged to know that you can discern the events that must take place prior to His second coming. Please call at any time, 24 888 244 hope And with a donation of any amount, we'll send the book right out to you entitled, God's Last Altar Call. We pray that you will be lifted up by the biblical insights in this book and grow spiritually in your walk with Christ. Join us again next time for another edition of Reaching Your Heart.